How does a person become a Christian? And is that different from being saved? Uh, on the one hand, there are several passages we might go to to answer this question. But sometimes we encounter uh, a concern from some who wonder if baptism is necessary because you're saved by faith and not by works, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 last week. Paul does say you are saved through faith, not from works. But what does Paul have in mind when he makes that statement in Ephesians chapter 2? Does he mean that there is absolutely no role for human will or effort? As the French reformer John Calvin once wrote, everything that he can call his own is set aside. In other words, John Calvin said anything that a person could possibly do, you have to take that out of the equation. He can't do it himself. You're saved by grace through faith alone, Calvin would say, based on Ephesians 2. But does Paul have something else in mind? Really, what we're asking is, would Paul consider baptism a work? Is it possible from the context of Ephesians chapter 2 to identify what Paul might have in mind? You can ask another question. What does this matter? There's much confusion in the religious world today. One says one thing, another says something else. So is it possible from Scripture to know? The two views are diametrically opposed. We want to make sure that we are teaching, or what we te are teaching is correct. I don't want to be responsible for someone being eternally lost or outside a relationship with God. Do you? So that's what it matters. This morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 22, we want to take a closer look at this passage and see what Paul's talking about. We want to compare Paul's comments regarding works here with other passages in which he discusses works. And then we want to weigh what the New Testament says regarding baptism and salvation. So let's begin then by taking a closer look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. If you have your Bibles, perhaps you've already turned there. But let's read it together, and then we'll go back and take a closer look. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both into one and broke down the barrier and the dividing wall, the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God, through the cross, 
by it having been put to death, or by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the house, God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. As we look at this section, let's begin to notice some things uh, as we look at it in, in greater detail. The section that begins in verse 11 is connected to the previous discussion by a somewhat rare conjunction in, in the Greek text, dio. And what dio is, is it's a conjunction uh, that uh, can serve a variety of functions. Uh, this is just one of, of a few of its primary functions. Drawing an inference, uh, making a conclusion or a summary based on the previous discussion. In other words, an inference gives a, a deduction or a conclusion or, or a summary to, to everything that's already been discussed. And Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, are either a deduction or a conclusion or a summary of what Paul has been talking about and how we are saved in Christ through faith and not from works. So when we look at verse 11, we see that therefore there, Paul is using that therefore to go back to what he's just been saying and, and draw a conclusion. And his conclusion is, therefore, remember that you formerly, who were the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. In other words, Paul is going back, he's using, beginning in verse 11, he's drawing that connection between this Jew and Gentile conflict that exists in the first century church. And it was primarily focused on the issue of circumcision. And he's using that as a conclusion of everything that he has said right before. Well, what is it that he has said right before? It's all that discussion of being saved by grace and not by works. In other words, the two sections, everything in the first half of chapter 11, all the way down through verse 10, is interwoven with this argument that he's making in verse 11 following uh, that the works is Judaism. The works is circumcision. Consider Paul's words in chapter 2, verse 11, following. Paul identifies these Christians by their previous state as Gentiles. Therefore, they are outside a relationship with God uh, prior to the saving work of Christ. He calls them formerly Gentiles in the flesh. He says that they were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. He says that they were separate from Christ. He says they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. He says they were strangers in the covenants of promise. What are these? The covenant relationship that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They were outside of that in the sense that they weren't connected with Abraham, Jacob, or Isaac, or Jacob. They had no uh, ethnic relationship with those folks because they weren't Jews. And so they were outside of that covenant. It wasn't going to be through their nation that the Messiah was to come. 
And so they were outside of that covenant relationship. They're outside of the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And so because of that, they had no hope. And they were without God in many respects. And the impact of these things is that Paul immediately defines the discussion of Ephesians chapter 2 in terms of the Old Testament law where these Gentile Christians were prior to Jesus. They were Gentiles apart from the law, and they had no hope. And Paul is restating their eternal fate on the basis outside of Jesus, the law. They had no hope. And then Paul goes on to articulate where they are now as Christians. He says, but now those of you that were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says the two groups that were separate, and there is that barrier wall dividing them. He says that's been broken down, and the two are now one man, one person, one being, one body. And he did that by abolishing in his flesh the enmity now, notice what he describes the enmity as. And maybe we need to back up just a second and say, well, what's an enmity? Enmity is just another word for hatred. There was a hatred that separated Jew and Gentile. And Paul says, here's what the enmity is. If you look at your text again. By abolishing in his flesh, verse 15, the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. In other words, the enmity was the law of Moses. You see, when Paul's talking here in Ephesians chapter 2, you are saved by grace through faith and not by works, he's talking about works of the law doing the things that the Old Testament law required you to do. And the big one was circumcision for those men. And you had Jewish members of the church in the first century who, in their minds, really insisted, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised as a man. And you had some Greek men that said, ah, that doesn't sound too good to me. And so it became a dividing issue in the church. Jesus did all these things that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 2. He did all those things to make the Jew and the Gentile into one man. And the result is that they have one citizenship, one household, one temple, which is the church. So how does Paul relate all, this, all of this to works? He says, as Gentiles, these Christians were saved by faith, not because they were having to do the works of the Old Testament law. It was the law which had separated the Gentiles and the Christians from hope. Not only had they separated Jew and Gentile, but when Christ died, he killed the law in his flesh. The old law was abolished. He says he nailed it to the cross. Doing the old law was not what saved a person. Being circumcised was not what saved a person. It was faith in God and faith in Christ. And it was faith in God and Christ's grace. The notion of works that Paul seems to have in mind is the Old Testament law, is the point that we're trying to get to. 
Now let's compare this idea to other passages in the New Testament which talk about works that Paul wrote. When we begin comparing Paul's discussion regarding works in other passages, we see very clearly that he much more articulately than he does here in Ephesians identify those works as the Old Testament law. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, he has a long discussion. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, verse 16, he has a long discussion about faith and works in the law. He says in Romans chapter 3, and verse 20, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Notice that, no works of the law. And just as he talked about the boasting in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he also says in, in chapter 3 and verse 27 of Romans, where then is boasting? It is excluded. In Ephesians 2 he said, so that no man may boast. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, Paul says, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he goes on in chapter 4 to argue that Abraham was saved while uncircumcised. He says he was the father of faith while uncircumcised, chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 10. He says that, he was a, that the promise was not through law, but by through faith, Romans chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. And his conclusion in verse 16 is that we are under grace, not under the law. In other words, Paul's discussion is not of being saved by works centered around the works of the law in general, and circumcision specifically. You're not saved by doing those things. We come over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, through chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul has a very similar discussion. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says again, man is not justified by works of the law. He says through faith in Christ, not by works of the law is a person saved, chapter 2, verse 16. If righteousness came through the law, Christ died needlessly, he says, Galatians chapter 2, in verse 20. And it says, as many as are of works of the law are under a curse, Galatians chapter 3, and verse 10. Finally, Paul says, as he's talking about Abraham, he says in Galatians chapter 3, and verse 17, that the law that came 430 years later was not able to save. What law came 430 years after Abraham? The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Again, the discussion as we look in Galatians chapter two verses or Galatians chapter five verses two and three relates to the Old Testament law. All of this discussion Paul is having is about those Judaizing teachers uh, that say you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the Old Testament law in order to become a Christian, in order to be saved. And Paul's doing everything he can to communicate with the churches that he was working with that that's not the case. You don't become a Christian. You are not saved by doing the Old Testament law. You're saved by faith. Faith in God. Faith in Christ. Following God following Christ and what they would have you do to become a Christian. That's what we see. And so we get so confused sometimes when we look at Ephesians chapter 2 because Paul says that you're saved by faith through grace, and that's absolutely true. Folks, grace is that idea that says you don't deserve this. I'm going to give it to you anyway. God had a plan. That plan was that you can be saved and you can have an eternity with him simply because he loves you so much. 
that is absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some things that I need to do in becoming a Christian. The point of all of this is that when Paul is talking about works, he's talking about works of the Old Testament law that were pushed by Jewish Christians to force Gentile Christians to be circumcised as a condition of salvation. And Paul says, that's not true. This is clear in Romans. It's clear in Galatians. And it's really clear in Ephesians when we take all of Ephesians chapter 2 in its context and we see he has a long discussion about circumcision. Does Paul then have in mind here that there's no role for any human action in coming to Jesus Christ, in becoming a Christian? What about when Paul talks about belief, saved through faith? If you're saved through faith, doesn't that mean that you have to believe in God? If you believe in God, is that not a mental action on your part? That you're doing something, isn't it? What about in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 when it says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What about all the passages in the New Testament that talk about repentance? Isn't repentance you choosing to turn from a previous lifestyle to follow God? That's you doing something. If we're going to say that there's absolutely nothing you can do to affect your salvation, then that would take out your role in belief and it would take out or remove your role in repentance. Are there other passages in the New Testament in which Paul indicates that there's a role of human behavior in becoming a Christian? Weigh what the New Testament says regarding baptism and salvation from sin. I believe the Bible teaches us very clearly that baptism is associated with the forgiveness of sins. As Paul recounts the story in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, and he's, he's talking about his own conversion. He says, you know, this guy named Ananias came to me, and he, he, he preached to me, and he talked to me. This is the plan that God has for you. And he says there in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 that Ananias looked at him and said, Paul, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we've already alluded to it. Peter is talking to the crowds of Jerusalem. And as he's talking to them, the crowds ask him, what must we do? And what's Peter's response in Acts chapter 2 verse 38? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, uh, Peter says, uh, relating the story of Noah and the flood, he says, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. Not a washing of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Baptism now saves you. Those aren't my words. Those are the inspired words of the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. And of course, in Romans chapter 6, verses, six through, uh, verses 4 through 6, really bring home the point to us. When Paul is answering his own rhetorical question, what shall we do? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, may it never be. But then he goes on to say, do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, and that we've been buried with him through baptism into his death? He goes on to say, we have crucified our old body of sin with him in baptism. 
It is through baptism that our body of sin has been crucified. Folks, we have our body of sin with us, according to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. We're still walking around with it until that day that we choose to become united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Again, those aren't my words. Those are Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. It's at that point that we've crucified our old body of sin. He goes on to say, and we're raised with him in that baptism to have a newness of life. And there needs to be a change that goes along with that newness of life. But you see, I crucified that body of sin with Christ in baptism. Well, if that's what he says about baptism, what about the sinner's prayer? What do we find in Scripture about the sinner's prayer? There's not a single example in the New Testament of someone praying and then that person being identified as being saved or receiving forgiveness of sins. There's not a single place in the New Testament in which the sinner's prayer is written, nor is it found. Unless someone takes a copy of the sinner's prayer and tapes it in the back of your Bible. But in the text of the Bible, it's not there. And there's not a single time in Scripture that we find a reference to a person who receives salvation through prayer. In fact, in Acts chapters 10 and 11, the opposite is the case with Cornelius, who is praying and praying and praying. And when he has his prophecy, when he has his vision, and the angel comes and speaks to him, he says, your prayers have been heard. That you've been saved? No. That someone's going to come and tell you what you and your family must do. And what was it that Peter told Cornelius' family that they needed to do? He says, where is water that prohibits bees from being baptized? And he ordered them that very hour to be baptized. And Cornelius and his entire household was baptized. If it was just prayer, why wasn't Cornelius saved at the beginning of the chapter? Luke could have saved two chapters, folks. It's simply not in the text. Does works in Ephesians chapter 2 really mean that there's no role? If so, what role is too much human behavior? Some of our neighbors will say that, that we need to pray, but if it's prayer that saves us, us saying the sinner's prayer, isn't that somebody doing something? You're saying a prayer, either mentally or verbally stating something. Now, Scripture does talk about appealing to God, as we saw in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If belief is the only thing, isn't that still me mentally doing something? Baptism is passive. It's something that is done to you. It's not you doing a good deed. Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, that baptism is not the washing of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Paul says that as we are being baptized, or his Ananias was talking to him about his baptism, he says, arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. You see, baptism is us accepting God's gift of grace in the manner in which he asked us to accept it. The gift was there. And we were baptized, we are accepting God's gift of faith, the, the gift of grace 
And we're doing that because we have faith that by following what he impels us or tells us to do, we will be saved. Being baptized by faith and in faith and with faith is acknowledging, I trust that God is going to fulfill his promise, that he is washing away my sin, that the blood of Christ is what's cleansing me, that I'm really being united with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. That's my faith. And I'm saved by that. Not because I'm trying to do a good deed. Not because I'm trying to follow the Old Testament law. But because I believe in what God says. Finally, in the New Testament, we see in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, that Jesus tells his 11 apostles, he says, Go therefore into all the world, making disciples of every nation. How, Jesus? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything he has taught you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then what we see in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 is that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Did you see that? Go and make disciples, baptizing them. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You become a Christian when you're united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. That's when you're saved. When you've crucified that old body of sin with Jesus by being united with him in baptism. It's not a work, folks. It's a faith. It's a belief that God's going to do what he said he was going to do. Paul didn't associate baptism with works works of the Old Testament law. Instead, he says, this is something that we do in faith when we acknowledge Christ, when we acknowledge his death, burial, and resurrection, and we become united with it. Isn't it awesome that God loves you and me so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to take away our sins, and we can realize that promise, we can realize that gift by being joined with Christ in baptism. And maybe that's what you need to do this morning. And if it is, we're ready to help you do that this morning. Maybe you have other needs that you would like the church to know about. Maybe there are other things in your life you'd like the church to pray about. But whatever your need, won't you come? Together we stand and sing.